There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The trajectory of the cannabis industry and how it has made a lot of efforts to be inclusive, but did so too late. We want to play a role in making sure that the psychedelic industry is having these conversations now before the infrastructure and the drug development has been built out so much that it's kind of an afterthought and it's difficult to be inclusive. The world of psychedelics is getting ever more tantalizing, as is the medium of psychedelic journalism. And we're speaking to one of the forerunners in Shelby Hartman. She's the co-founder and editor of Double Blind Magazine. There's so much we can learn from her internationally and what's going on in the United States. So let's get into this conversation. You're listening to Stop and Search on Scribius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Let's go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Thank you for joining us on Stop and Search. And you're going to be listening to Shelby Hartman for Double Blind Magazine, co-founder and editor. And Double Blind Magazine is particularly fascinating because it's got the digital version, which we can all access. And I urge you to do so. Shelby gives the social media shout outs within this episode. But the print edition is so, so useful for, for outreach and having that tangible link to good quality psychedelic journalism. So if you've got a bookstore near you that stocks it, please do go support it. But if there's a store, a bookstore near you that you think could work in tandem with Double Blind Magazine. Get in contact with Double Blind Magazine and see if you can get a stock going because it's just really, really crucial to get that degree of outreach going. And that's one of the conversations that I have with Shelby in this episode is what can we learn from good and bad drug journalism? How can we learn more about outreach? But also things like cannabis. What can we learn from cannabis regulation and how can we apply that to the emerging world of psychedelics? Because we are in that renaissance period now of psychedelics, what can we learn from the mistakes, but also that benefits us all down the line? And including things like native and indigenous populations that have controlled these medications and these drugs for centuries. What can we do to have safeguards around that? What can we do in terms of furthering the conversation about trauma and PTSD? So much we talk about with the world of psychedelics because it is huge right now. So you can find Shelby on social media at Shelby Ann Hart. That's her Instagram and Twitter. And of course, if you want to get involved in Law Enforcement Action Partnership, then Police for Reform is the Twitter handle in the US and at UK Leap is, well, 
speaks for itself in the UK. But you can find law enforcement action partnership across the globe as well. So find your local branch and get involved. And I think on that note, we can get involved because as much as this is a fairly short episode, it's a big, big, big conversation. So thank you so much, Shelby, for being part of this. Yeah, let's talk about psychedelics. So thank you for joining me, Shelby Hartman. It's, it's a genuine pleasure because getting people that are proficient in drug journalism, I think can be quite tricky because drug journalism can historically in this country be very much about the the fascia, you know, the, still sometimes the just say no side of things. So for someone that is absolutely embedded in drug journalism, what's it like at the moment in the field that we're dealing with, with regards to psychedelics, cannabis, how exciting is this field? I don't think it could be more exciting. There is so much happening within the realm of psychedelic drug development, psychedelic research, psychedelic ceremonial growth. Every single aspect of the quote-unquote psychedelic industry community field is growing exponentially, and there's so much to be said about all of it. How, how long have you actually been interested in psychedelics in in a personal sense but also in a professional sense well i'm 31 and i tripped for the first time when i was 18 in college on mushrooms and never really stopped tripping and i think i did my first story on psychedelics for vice in 2015 it was a story looking at the research investigating mdma for post-traumatic stress disorder and as often happens with journalism one story turns into another story turns into another story and one day i woke up and i was like oh my gosh i'm a psychedelic drug journalist <laughs> it is, it's, a, it's a weird pathway isn't it because uh, my life journey has been very similar i'd never expected to do what i'm doing now and yet we are so just to give you uh, a bit of an introduction to the uk audience so you are the editor-in-chief and founder of double blind magazine so can you give us a bit of a background on what the magazine's about but also how it started yeah, so just for starters, I'll say that Double Blind has a physical print magazine <laughs> that's in bookstores um, across the United States and ships worldwide. And I like to I say that with pride because print print is dying. But we also do a steady stream of online journalism on our website, which is doubleblindmag.com. And really, the mission of Double Blind is twofold. The first is to do hard-hitting, meaningful storytelling and journalism around the field of psychedelics, just to cover this really exciting, quote-unquote, industry as it unfolds and as it grows, and to hold all kind of the key stakeholders accountable for making sure that it doesn't make a lot of the mistakes that were made in cannabis. And secondarily, really just to be an education platform for people who are interested in embarking on a journey with psychedelics. Given all of the interest in psychedelics, there are more and more people who have never tripped before who want to trip for healing and they don't really know where to turn for reliable and safe information on how to do that. So I would say that it's journalism and it's also education. Would you say there's any hint of activism to what you do as well because of the awareness that you're bringing forward within the articles inherently? Would you say that you are pushing the boundaries and furthering conversations along? I know that we are. And it's a really tricky question because, you know, as a journalist, that one of the kind of fundamental tenets of best practices for reporting is, quote unquote, objectivity. Right. And my co-founder and I have spent a lot of time thinking about what that means, especially, you know, 
following the election of President Trump, I think the entire journalism industry had a bit of an existential crisis around, you know, what objectivity means and what it means to, you know, to sort of slyly editorialize in pieces that are supposed to be, uh, you know, covering, quote unquote, both sides. And, you know, it's, it's really tricky because um, Madison and I, like all journalists, Madison's my co-founder, are... Um, you know, we're also people and we also have opinions. And so when it comes to the journalism side of things, we are very devoted to um, to interviewing people in the psychedelic field who have different opinions on how the industry should unfold. Meaning that in my own personal life, I think that the you know, pharmaceutical FDA approval process is pretty backwards. But I, as a journalist, it's my responsibility to interview both the investors and researchers that are at for-profit psychedelic drug development companies and the activists who are behind campaigns to decriminalize psychedelics who think that, you know, basically the for-profit pharmaceutical model will always inherently be unethical. On the education side, though, I mean, we are teaching people how to use psychedelics. So, of course, you know, there is some activism in that because we're obviously, you know, we're pro-psychedelics, at least in certain contexts, if we're going to teach people how to use them. That's a really good rounded answer because one of the things that we're always having to discuss here, because I think that the UK is just that step behind what you're doing in the US. And one of the things we're always having to address here is balance. So if, if a story comes up, then... The news gets hold of it and all of a sudden you've got 100 voices saying that pro-reform things and then you've got one voice saying, you know, we should keep things illegal in quotation marks. Well, that isn't balanced by presenting it in the media. So this is like something that I've always been interested in on this podcast specifically is good journalism and it's hard to come by. So from your quite vast experience now, what's it been like in the journalism field in the US with regards to those voices and getting balance and getting facts and information out there. Has it been a battlefield? Mm. Well, I think, I do think that the majority of mainstream media leans liberal in America. And you had referenced before that there's still sort of this Sano narrative, um, Sano being the, the phrase that um, the Reagans famously made famous during the war on drugs. And um, I, I would say I, I haven't really seen so much of that, um, you know, even quote unquote, more square uh, legacy news outlets like the New York Times and the Atlantic and the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the New Yorker. I mean, I could go on and on are now reporting positive stories on psychedelics. So, um, I yeah, I would say that. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who are totally anti-psychedelics or anti-drug policy reform, but I'm not really seeing those voices in the media. Does that mean that journalists aren't doing their job? I'm not sure. What's what's it been like as well with regards to having a finger in the air and how people, the average person, is connecting to the issue now? Because as we just mentioned, there's, there's a lot of just say no that happens in this country still. What's it like out there with regards to the the people that don't necessarily care about psychedelics or drug policy? Are they starting to get it? Are they starting to understand the benefits? It's hard to say. There needs to be more 
widespread public opinion polls on psychedelics the way that there has been around cannabis for a long time. Certainly, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which became a New York Times bestseller, did a big justice to the psychedelic movement um, and got a lot of people who didn't really know anything about psychedelics talking about them. I think we can look to other sort of quote-unquote mainstream media uh, as an indication that more and more people are interested in psychedelics now. We have this show that came out on Netflix called Have a Good Trip. Of course, Hamilton Morris's show, uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice, Joe Rogan's podcast. I mean, again, I could go on and on, but I mean, all of these shows and podcasts have millions and millions and millions of listeners. Does that mean that people all across America are talking about psychedelics? Probably not. It's hard for me to gauge because I live, you know, I, I hang out with people who do psychedelics and I do psychedelics and it's my entire universe. Also, also like from your perspective, uh, because certainly from from what my perspective in the UK is that we've still got a long way to go. You know, we're, we're having a, a very reasonable conversation right now about the benefits of psychedelics and I'd like to get into it a little bit more. But there's still a criminal justice issue. There's still people out there, still with cannabis as well in the US, that are still being imprisoned. Uh, is there enough of a conversation around that that we're, even though that there is a lot of good progress being made, is there still some people that we aren't addressing? Is there enough of a conversation, generally speaking, around mass incarceration and criminal justice reform? Uh, no, there isn't. <laughs> um, you know, I, I started my career in mainstream media. So I started as a uh, helping produce at CBS Radio News in Washington, D.C., and then moved to the local affiliate here in Los Angeles, KNX 1070. And one of the reasons why I left broadcast news journalism at one of the major five broadcasters is because I was frustrated by the fact that we were telling the same stories as everyone else over and over and over again. And that's just a, a, a larger discussion around like how do how do newsrooms decide what the most important stories are and, and why, you know, and why do we see that the, and, uh, these news networks all feel they need to talk about the same things over and over again. And it's sort of we talk about the associated press to newsroom pipeline, right, that there's these wires that release this news and then they, the newsroom sort of just type it up and put it out there. So, you know, if, if a politician like AO Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders or someone else who people care about starts talking about mass incarceration, then yeah, it makes it into the news. But it, you know, it's not something that people are talking about all the time. There are many, many issues that are extremely important that the American public isn't talking about all the time, because again, they're talking about the five things that are on the news today. Um, specifically within the psychedelic community, there is a conversation happening right now about the need to decriminalize all drugs as opposed to specifically psychedelics. And Carl Hart, who's a neuroscientist at Columbia, recently came out with a book called um, "Drug Use for Grownups." That's it. Drug use for grownups. Thank you. And he um, he's really popularized what's called the quote psychedelic exceptionalism debate. This notion that when we 
just decriminalize or just legalize psychedelics and we don't talk about other drugs, that essentially what we're doing is we're reinforcing the privilege of the psychedelic community, which has historically been majority white. And we're not taking into account the fact that marginalized communities in this country have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs and been incarcerated for a lot of other drugs. So we're creating this hierarchy where essentially we're saying psychedelic use is is, is better or uh, you know, more legitimate or less, you know, you know, than than excuse me, than other drugs. Um, and so that is a conversation that's been happening. And he did a really important job popularizing it because his book was in the New York Times and he was all he was all over the place on on major television and stuff like that. Um, that being said, we're not seeing as much movement as Madison and I would like to around the decriminalization of all drugs in this country as opposed to the decriminalization of psychedelics. So the Decriminalized Nature campaign, which began in Oakland and decriminalized all natural psychedelics and plants and fungi at the ballot box in um, June of 2019, um, really has spread like wildfire across the country. And we're now seeing more than 100 cities and counties that are looking to replicate that initiative. Meanwhile, Oregon decriminalized all drugs at the ballot box in November, which was a huge win for the criminal justice community. And I know that there are other cities, counties and states that are interested in following, but it certainly doesn't have the momentum of these these initiatives that are just looking at decriminalizing psychedelics. You mentioned Carl Hart there, and he's been a guest on this podcast. Um, and he's he's one of these people as well that, as you eloquently put, he, he's got his own issues of how we should conduct this conversation and what we should be highlighting. So from your perspective, as a, as, a, as a very respected drug journalist, what are some of the issues that you are really delving into now and you want to get highlighted? There's so many. Madison and I do um, care very much about this whole conversation that's happening around sacred or indigenous reciprocity, which is this idea that if someone is using psychedelics um, entheogens and they don't have an ancestral tie to that medicine, that it is their responsibility to give back to the indigenous stewards of that medicine in some way. Um, this is a conversation that hasn't really been um, mainstreamed very much, but is actively happening within the psychedelic community. And we're seeing some really interesting efforts on the part of um, a pharmaceutical company called Journey Colab to uh, sort of incorporate indigenous or sacred reciprocity into their drug development by, <clears throat> for example, one of the things that they're doing is they've made a commitment that if they're going to research a synthetic version of an ind indigenous medicine, that they'll also be putting capital and resources towards preserving its sort of like natural version. Um, they're developing like a synthetic version of mescaline. Um, and you probably know that peyote is endangered and peyote is a mescaline containing cactus. So um, that's one thing that we're interested in talking about. We're interested in talking about how to make psychedelic research and clinical trials more inclusive. Um, so Monica Williams is a researcher that's doing some really important work around psychedelics for racial trauma specifically. We've also interviewed and done stories on basically how psychedelic clinical trials can be more inclusive of the queer community and queer folks. And there's some interesting research happening around that as well. Um, for us, I think, you know, we, Madison and I looking at the, the trajectory of the cannabis industry and how 
it has made a lot of efforts to be inclusive, but did so too late. We want to play a role in making sure that the psychedelic industry is having these conversations now before the infrastructure and the drug development has been built out so much that it's kind of an afterthought and it's difficult to be inclusive. Well, I'm definitely going to put on a, a thread on that on a minute because that's, that's fascinating. But you, at the beginning of this conversation, you touched upon PTSD as well. So do you think, um, I think I'm going to be giving you a leading question here, but do you think that psychedelics has got a part to play in PTSD treatment? Oh, it absolutely does. I'll, I'll, I'll be even more, I'll make an even more grandiose statement and say that psychedelics have huge potential to heal trauma specifically trauma in general. And why I say that is because PTSD is, you know, it's a specific indication that people are diagnosed with based on presenting certain symptoms. And one of the things that the psychedelic community is interested in talking about is trauma more broadly. And this idea that mental health diagnoses are kind of arbitrary, um, because a lot of times, um, you know, for example, we might say someone has a substance use disorder, right? Like they have an issue, they, they are dependent upon a particular substance, whether it's alcohol or nicotine or anything else, when in reality, what's going on is that they're traumatized and their relationship with the substance is how they're trying to kind of numb that trauma. Um, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that psychedelics, whether it be psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, are able to cure so many different kinds of things. Like it's kind of nutty if you think about it, right? Because typically what we see is like a drug is approved for a particular condition. And sometimes it can work for multiple conditions. But I mean, literally psilocybin has shown promise for eating disorders, nicotine dependence, alcohol dependency, uh, PTSD. Uh, I mean, you you name it. And, and, and that's because... Um, likely, I mean, this is what researchers hypothesize, it's getting at, at something deeper that's going on with people that manifests in, in a variety of quote-unquote indications. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say yes. And in specifically in regards to post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, MDMA is, is the drug that has been researched most for that. And they've actually done MRIs on people um, who before and after an MDMA session and shown that MDMA changes the way that the amygdala, their fight or flight response of the brain reacts. Typically people with PTSD have kind of an overactive amygdala, which is why like they're in a circumstance where they're walking down the street and like they see light flashing and they get a flashback. They think that they're still in a combat zone or something like that. So um, the data is pretty definitive at this point. From your perspective, is it an exciting time or is it still a frustrating time because there's still a lot of barriers that are going on both sides of the Atlantic? So how, how do you feel about the realm in general? Is, is it going to be progressing? I think it's a very exciting time. I, I don't, I, I said recently um, to a friend, you know, I don't think that we are going to see a repeat of history. And what I mean by that is that, you know, people who know about the history of, of psychedelic research in the, in the West, quote unquote, I'm sure know about how there was a bunch of psychedelic research happening in the fifties and sixties. And then it was basically all shut down when Richard Nixon signed the controlled substances act in 1970. And 
that was amid a bunch of, you know, all the sort of counterculture hubbub with Tim Leary and Woodstock and, you know, um, the sensationalism around psychedelics. And at this point, it feels like the cat is really out of the bag. Like, uh, like I said, like at this point, you know, more, I want to say, I, I don't know the exact number, but half a dozen cities and counties have decriminalized at this point, maybe more, maybe a dozen. And then we have Oregon that just legalized medical psilocybin. We have um, some advocates that are actually speaking to federal uh, government officials, senators and, and representatives about passing a massive bill that would put, I think, I think, I think they're looking to get I can't remember the number, but some huge amount of money put towards uh, federally approved psychedelic research. So it just feels like, you know, yeah, the cat's the cat's out of the bag. And of course, it is frustrating that there are so many people who are suffering who really want access to psychedelics now and can't get access. And that's something that we feel viscerally every single day working at Double Blind because so many people, like too many people for us to handle almost, although we managed to get through it, DM us on Instagram and email us being like, you know, I have postpartum depression, I'm suicidal, I want to try psilocybin or I'm a veteran and I live in Kentucky and I don't know how to access ayahuasca and I can't afford to go to the Amazon, like whatever. We hear from people all day long who are just suffering and suffering, you know, it's like it's now and it's and it's a a second from now and it's a second from now again. You know what I mean? Like these people, you know, they shouldn't have to wait two and a half years until MAPS approves MDMA or the FDA approves MDMA uh, for PTSD. And then they go and they find a clinic and then they get it approved by their insurance and then they do the preparation sessions and then they da 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 da. And so, um, yeah, that, 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 that is hard uh, for us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm glad you touched upon that actually, because at Double Blind magazine, you must get a lot of feedback. So, what is that feedback like? Is it, as you just mentioned, a lot of frustrated people going, "Why can't I get the help that I need?" Um, is it positive feedback as well? You know, generally, how how is it at Double Blind magazine? Yeah, I would say that um, 
it's a combination of people who are really, really grateful for the information that we're publishing and putting out and people who have had their curiosity piqued by the information we're putting out and now are ready to take that next step to have a journey and don't know where to access psychedelics. And, you know, the elephant in the room when talking about psychedelics is, you know, we're, we're protected by the First Amendment. We follow all the best practices when it comes to journalism. Like, we can say whatever we want, but we can't, you know, give people drugs that are illegal, you know? So that's, you know, and, and people do actually ask. People actually do message us and say, you know, will you help me find mushrooms? And the only thing we can say is like, sorry, no, but here's an article on how to do them safely if you find a way, to, if you find access to them. Um, so yeah, it's hard. It is hard. What do you think we could learn from you and, and the US in how things are shaping up? Because the UK is, I definitely think it's said to say we're a step behind. You know, we still haven't got... Uh, we've technically got medicinal cannabis, but that's a, that's a contentious issue. What can the UK learn from what's going on in the US? Well, gosh, I wish I knew more about what was happening in the UK. Um, I, I do think that there's a lot of different efforts happening within the US to overturn psychedelic prohibition. So as mentioned, there's the folks who are just trying to decriminalize the possession of psychedelics at the local level. And then there's the folks with the Oregon psilocybin initiative, which legalized medical psilocybin at the state level. And there have been a couple other legislators in other states who are looking to do something similar. There were some legislators in Hawaii that wanted to do something and some people in Florida. And then we also have, um, Madison and I wrote about this recently for our column with Rolling Stone. There's also all these efforts up on the parts of religious groups to get um, exemption from the, um, from the DEA to use psychedelics for sacred reasons and some ceremonial reasons. And then we have all the FDA-approved research that's trying to medicalize psychedelics and essentially get them on the market as prescription medications in therapeutic contexts. And what Madison and I have always really been in favor of and wanted to use our journalism to encourage is dialogue between all these different players. And sometimes, you know, and, and, and we've been glad to see that there has been more and more conversation happening. And there are people who are really prominent within the field, for example, like Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, who has has made it a point to say publicly that he feels like all these various routes that people are taking to overturn psychedelic prohibition aren't necessarily competing with one another and that we can create sort of an, an ecosystem to overturn prohibition and for reform. Um, but 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 that doesn't it, it doesn't always quite work out that way. There's definitely some people in the decrim campaigns who are very, very anti for profit drug development. And then there's people on the for profit drug development side who or even just drug development in general who are very anti like people growing mushrooms in their house and just taking them because they don't want, you know, someone to do something stupid and to kind of derail all of the federally approved research. So I guess my my whole thing would 
my 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 piece of advice for any kind of country, whether it's the UK or anyone else who's following in the footsteps of the US would be like, bring all the stakeholders to the table um, and find a way to, to work together. Because the reality is that even if, you know, you feel really strongly that like your way is the best way, all these other people do too. And no one is going to stop putting energy and effort and resources towards like their way. So might as well just find a way to share resources and work together. Uh, that is interesting because it's definitely something that we contend with here is a lot of different activism groups and outreach groups that have all got their own idealism and it, sometimes it works, sometimes it conflicts, sometimes it's in, into battles. And you mentioned earlier, and this is the thread that I wanted to pick up on, is that the psychedelic community, in your words, can learn from what's happened with cannabis. Um, so what can you learn from cannabis in terms of the positives that you can pick out and also what you'd like to change potentially for the better? That's a big question. Um, well, one thing that I would say about cannabis is that cannabis has created this false dichotomy where it's like medical use or recreational use. And I think that that reinforces this idea that like plants, psychedelic plants and fungi are either medicine or they're just used for recreation. And we know that that's not true. Anyone who has ever done a psychedelic has probably had the experience of, okay, you can go and do a psychedelic while you're camping with your friends and it can turn out to be like extremely healing and medicinal. And then you could also be doing a psychedelic like in the most clinical sterile context ever and just something hilarious can happen and you can be laughing and it can feel like very celebratory and even joy and celebration can be healing too. So I would just say that like a broader point I would make here is that there's been a false dichotomy created in cannabis that I would not like to see replicated within psychedelia. Um, additionally, um, obviously there has just been a way, way, way too much regulation within can the cannabis industry and you know, my co-founder Madison often jokes that like she she can't even get a pack of like CBD joints from an LA dispensary open because there's so much like plastic and child proofing on them. And, you know, this has created barriers to entry for, like I said, a lot of people who have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs and um, because it's just so freaking expensive and complicated to navigate all of the licensing and regulations and things that have been put in place by states. And so, you know, people, this is part of the reason why people are so passionate about kind of the homegrown movement and the decriminalization campaigns is like, okay, if you can grow mushrooms in your backyard or like in your house, then, you know, it won't really matter what kind of like barriers to entry that, you know, a retail model has established. But there's also been some other interesting models put forth. Like, for example, um, you know, some people have proposed that psilocybin should literally just be sold like a supplement next to like lion's mane and reishi in the Whole Foods store. Um, and um, yeah, again, like making sure too that we are creating business models that are inclusive and allow people who aren't well capitalized to enter the industry. And I don't know, you know, we had a piece that was published by cannabis attorney Nicole Howell in, I want to say it was the fourth issue of Double Blind that was laying out specifically how we might do that. Um, but, you know, and it, it gets very in the weeds around regulations and, and what that looks like. But she puts forth a lot of really interesting ideas 
areas like limits on patenting of psychedelic compounds, you know, um, mandating that every psychedelic company is what's called a benefit corporation, which is a really interesting kind of legal entity that essentially says we will always prioritize public benefit over profit. Um, so it, it gets really it really gets in the weeds <laughs> of like how we do this and the, and the mechanics. But the overall takeaway just being like the number one goal of the psychedelic movement, in my opinion, is to make sure that people have access to these plants and fungi that might be able to heal them and then ultimately their relationships with other people and the planet and our political systems, et cetera. So we just want to set up the industry in such a way that like everyone who wants to participate can um, professionally and everyone who wants to participate personally, spiritually, otherwise can as well. So just before we wrap up, where, where can we find Double Blind on, online? And, and you mentioned there's a print version as well, which can be international. So just give us some shout outs on, on that if you can. Yeah, of course. Um, so doubleblindmag.com and we're at doubleblindmag on all the, all the social medias, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. I'm probably forgetting one. Um, and you can subscribe to the magazine on our website. And we actually do have a huge audience in the UK and in London. So hopefully at some point we will do an event in London. That would be awesome. Oh, definitely. Yeah, please keep us in contact for that. That would be, be absolutely amazing. Um, so what what are some of the things that going forward, you know, the, the psychedelic movement is still in its infancy it is to, to some degree or another. So what are you going to be keeping your eyes out for personally within this movement? How is it going to be shaping up for you? Keep I'm keeping an eye on what cities de- decriminalize next, what cities and counties. I'm keeping an eye on whether any more legislators introduce um, psilocybin therapy initiatives like what we saw out of Oregon. Be very interested in that. I'm keeping an eye on how many cities and counties go for decrim of all drugs as opposed to just decrim specifically or decrim of psychedelics specifically. I'm keeping an eye on the timeline, very close eye on the timeline for MDMA and psilocybin because we think those will be legalized. MDMA probably in the next three years, psilocybin probably in the next five. And I'm very curious to see too what psychedelic compounds end up actually making their way into what we call phase one of FDA approved studies. Because right now there's literally, I mean, God, like I want to say more than a hundred, I mean, dozens and dozens of novel psychedelic compounds that are in what's called preclinical research, Um, but they haven't actually made it into humans yet. So I'm really excited to see, you know, what actually uh, makes it into humans and starts working its way towards the FDA approval process after psilocybin and MDMA. And and just again wrap up on the fact that you are such a, a respected journalist in this field and it is such an interesting field. What does pick your interest when something comes through on, on the wires? You know, what if there is a press release that you're getting through, what ones you must have to turn certain ones down now because the field is getting so, so big. So on on one hand, what are the things that you think, okay, we we've covered that enough, and what are the things that you do want to start really covering? As mentioned before, I, you know, we really are interested in writing more about um, indigenous rights and indigenous use of, of plant medicines. And I mean, we don't, 
the thing is that we we don't really get a ton of press releases about psychedelics. I mean, the only press releases that we get are press releases that are put out by drug development companies. And, um, you know, because they're pretty much the only ones that have the the capital and the and the PR savvy to, you know, put together a press release and put it out on business wire or whatever. Um, and to be honest, a lot of those press releases are not interesting to us at all. I mean, we get sent them all the time and, um, it seems like a lot of psychedelic drug development companies are, um, they're talking a big game and we're not sure how much substance is actually there. Um, you know, just like I said, like preclinical, I mean, okay, so you're investigating a psilocybin like compound for weight loss in rats. Okay. Uh, what is that? What does that even mean? You know what I mean? And now you're going to, now you're in your series A, you're going to go and raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars because you think that this is the solution for weight loss. I mean, you got to really look at that critically as a journalist and say, okay, uh, how much data do we actually have that this thing is going to work? Um, what are the chances this thing will ever make it into humans? So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I think sort of, fuss around uh, sort of unvalidated fuss around the drug development stuff. Um, but we are interested in doing longer, more investigative kind of hard hitting pieces on the psychedelic drug development industry and the ethics around patenting and stuff. Well, Shelby, you've got another appointment soon. So I'm going to, I was going to wrap up with you. So thank you so much for joining us and giving us your very, very, very eminent insight into what's going on um any final points that you want to make any kind of wrap-up points that you want to get in there that we've not mentioned well i do always feel it's my responsibility to say that psychedelics are not going to heal all your problems and the psychedelics are not for everyone no but i mean truthfully you know psychedelics have shown incredible promise for a number of, of conditions um and um, we are supportive of people having access to psychedelics if it's right for them. But I would encourage anyone who is interested in psychedelics to really do their research and, you know, read up on things like set and setting and dose and trip sitting and all these kind of fundamental best practices around how to trip safely. And that is what Double Blind's for. So you can check check out all that stuff on our website. Um, but yeah, that would be my my final note. That's a perfect point to end on. Thank you so much, Yelby. Of course. Thank you so much, Shelby, for being part of that conversation. I always learn a lot from Double Blind Magazine, which is why I urge you to seek out the digital version. But as I said at the start of this episode, the print edition is really crucial. So please do support that where you can. Thank you so much, Shelby, for everything you do. If you like that episode, please do the usual. Share, like, subscribe, leave a nice review. It all really, really helps. Have a look at our past catalogue. And we've got so many more people coming up. So, yeah, please do keep subscribed. If you want to find our work in police law reform, then Law Enforcement Action Partnership are across the globe. And yeah, our Twitter handle in the US is Police Law Reform. And in the UK, our social media is at UK Leap. Right, a few thank yous and then we're signing off. So thank you so much to Nikki Elson for being the executive producer of this show. Thank you to John and Tristan for everything you do for this show. Thank you so much to John Harris at the Distraction Pieces Network and thank you for Scooby's Pit for having us on the network. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune and my name is Ad for the Artwork. <sighs> right, on that note, I'm now signing off and having a cup of tea. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Behind your barricades 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.